This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we may think about the most. This month's series is on the experience of incarceration. The United States imprisons more people than any other country in the world. And when we let people out, we often release people to a world that they have not been prepared for, a world where a prison record will make it very difficult to get housing or a job. I'll be speaking today with Michael Leppi about his work as a public defender or a court-appointed lawyer for those who are charged with a crime but don't have the money to pay for a lawyer. Michael Leppi is a deputy public defender in Contra Costa County, California. He's a graduate of Berkeley Law School, and during his time as a public defender, he's taken over 30 cases to jury trial. He currently represents indigent clients charged with felonies ranging from drug and theft offenses to murder. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Michael. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So people often think about your role as kind of overworked, underpaid, thankless task working with, you know, unsavory characters. Given that stereotype, tell me a little bit about yourself and what made you want that job. You know, I didn't really know what I was going to do initially when I went to law school, but I I started, you know, I I went to law school with the idea that I wanted to work with people and to be somebody's advocate and to be someone's helper, really. And I didn't want to be sitting in an office pushing paper around my desk representing some mega corporation somewhere. Uh, In terms of my background, I grew up with parents who were very active in civil rights, the civil rights movement and in social justice movements. And so I have a strong kind of sense of of justice, and especially around racial and socioeconomic issues. Um, And as I was in law school, it started to kind of coalesce, this idea started to coalesce in my mind about what I could do that was really representative of my values. And I started to see indigent criminal defense as really a civil rights issue. It's one of the kind of remaining strong civil rights issues that I think we still face in this country. Um, and that's really what kind of attracted me initially to the work. What were, as you anticipated starting, you know, as you were freshly graduating, what were your hopes about the jobs and what were your worries about it? And kind of did those play out? Um, my hopes about the job, it was really about being able to see an injustice or see someone being overcharged with a crime or see someone who was guilty of a crime but being treated just unfairly and railroaded by an impersonal, uncaring, bureaucratic justice system and really be able to work out a kind of favorable outcome for them so that they could hopefully get over this bad period of their life and land on their feet and become, you know, kind of a happy, productive member of society, what we all hope to be, really. And my fear was that I would just get burdened down and overworked and that I wouldn't have the time to develop relationships with my clients um, and that I would just kind of get burned out. And all of those things are partially true. I definitely feel at times incredibly overworked and that I'm, I'm struggling to kind of keep my head above water in terms of representing my clients and really being able to do everything that I want to do for them. Um, And, you know, I have seen the way that the system kind of grinds people down and grinds lawyers down. You know, that is a constant, it's a constant struggle to kind of wake up every day and say, I'm ready to do this again. 
And I heard you say earlier that for you, part of the passion is feeling like being a public defender is one way to really be working in civil rights. And yes. I'd like to hear more about that. I think a lot of people don't see criminal defense as a civil rights or social justice issue um, for the simple fact that, you know, often a lot of our clients are guilty of crimes and people kind of have this very black and white view of, well, you know, you committed this crime and therefore you should be punished for it. Um, I see it as a civil rights issue for a couple reasons. One is that, you know, the particularly with drug laws and uh, the kind of idea of getting tough on crime and this war on crime, it's led to increasing policing and the increasing militarization of our police forces. And unfortunately, those police forces are kind of centered in often uh, poor neighborhoods or direct their enforcement in poor neighborhoods um, and in neighborhoods of people of color. And I think this, the simplest example is... Uh, that all tons of studies indicate that people across all color lines and socioeconomic lines use drugs at the same kind of general rates, and yet vast numbers of African Americans are incarcerated for low-level nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, and so we have a, what I see as a very kind of tangible, in my practice, civil rights issue by representing people of color. Um, and then another civil rights issue that I see is just quite simply that people who are charged with crimes are often just encouraged to kind of accept a certain punishment or expected by society to be just, okay, well, you did this, you should plead guilty to this. But what a lot of people don't see is that, you know, criminal convictions have a significant number of repercussions from being unable to find work, uh, being able to uh, not find housing, losing access to student loans um, if you're trying to go to school and, and better yourself. And so a lot of the time I can say, well, look, you know, my client may have done uh, this, that, or the other thing, but how they came to that point, there is a background. There, you know, they grew up um, without a consistent parent figure or they you know, bounced around to various schools or they were underserved by oversized classrooms uh, in their schools. And, you know, maybe they've been trying to do something right in the world, but they live in a community where there's not a lot of access to jobs. And maybe they made a mistake or by deciding to steal something, or maybe they were with a group of, group of people and a group dynamic led them to make a bad decision. Uh, or maybe they got addicted to drugs or alcohol. None of which is to excuse their behavior or their choices, but to explain the context in which the, some of those choices get made. And if I can try to fight for some sort of resolution for somebody that would allow them to um, not have their life you know, derailed, that would be uh, you know, a positive outcome. And I could actually think, if, uh, uh, if you're interested in one particular kind yeah. of story about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Tell me a story about that. So, you know, this is kind of a, a simple example, and I'll change names to protect some confidentiality. Um, but I had recently represented a, a young man, I think about 20 years old. His name is Lance. Uh, and he's African-American and grows up in a part of Contra Costa County, which is in Northern California, um, near San Francisco for your listeners. Uh, and 
Uh, he grew up in a city called Richmond. It was a very vibrant city during World War II. It was a center of uh, shipbuilding yards. And it attracted a lot of African-American laborers to work in the shipbuilding yards. And so it's a predominantly African-American community, and all the jobs have gone away, and there's not a lot of opportunity. And Lance grew up in this neighborhood. Um, his father was murdered uh, when he was a young man in a drug deal gone bad. And uh, he grew up kind of with grandmas and aunts and bouncing around. And his mom was also in the picture, but she also has a criminal record and spent some time being incarcerated. A lot of the people that he knows are involved in gangs because that's kind of just what's there is for young men particularly to do in his neighborhood. And he has really been trying to steer clear of that life. He um, went graduated high school. He was trying to do some apprenticeship programs that the city offers in terms of finding a job. But he also knows a lot of people who are involved in, in engaging in criminal conduct. And there was a situation where Lance got arrested uh, carrying... I don't know, I think it was about two grams of, of crack cocaine. Um, and I'm not exactly sure the level of his involvement in selling drugs, but he was caught carrying the drugs, and it was packaged as if it were for sale. So he got charged with uh, possessing drugs for sale. Um, and that's significant for, t for two reasons. One is, um, unlike marijuana or methamphetamine, um, possession of crack cocaine is a straight felony. It cannot be charged as a misdemeanor. So despite the relatively small amount of drugs he was found with, there was no kind of alternative charge for him to get a misdemeanor. Um, the other significant thing is possession of drugs for sale is exposes someone to a lot more potential uh, jail or prison time, and it's something that stays on people's records forever. Uh, and I was just, you know, trying my best to work out a resolution for him where he could, um, you know, get a misdemeanor, get some form of drug diversion so that he could have this one thing taken off of his record so that he can continue on a path and maybe recognize that he made one mistake and continue on. And unfortunately, we were just never able to negotiate a, a deal where he could um, have a misdemeanor plea resolution um, and a felony would do all of those things that I talked about, like make it hard for him to get a job, make it hard for him to get student loans if he ever wanted to go to school. Um, and so I really saw my representation of him as, as not so much of trying to excuse his behavior, but to really give him a chance that I thought that he deserved given the context of his life, given the fact that he had no record up until that point. He had never been involved in any sort of juvenile delinquency or anything like that. And and so I saw that as a real kind of civil rights issue for him to really give him a chance to transcend the circumstances of his upbringing. And, you know, maybe he could have taken advantage of it, maybe he wouldn't, but I was unfortunately not able to really negotiate for him a resolution uh, that we wanted. So we ended up, um, you know, doing a trial on his case. What was that experience of going to trial like? Uh, well, going to trial is always... Um, it's both a scary and a very uplifting experience, I think. Um, it was just funny. I was in a, I was in a trial uh, this week on a, on a separate case. That, the case that I was describing happened a, about a year ago. Um, but I was in a trial on a separate case this week, and, you know, everybody moans when they get summoned for jury duty, right? I mean, it's just one of those things that nobody wants to interrupt their lives to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> but 
but it's also one of those things that, you know, I say this during jury selection to people, but it's, it's incredible when you actually take a moment to think about it, um, because really, as, as U.S. citizens, I mean, we have no obligations, right? I mean, you don't have to vote. Um, the military is all volunteer right now in our country. Um, but, you know, the Constitution, the founding document of this country, it requires people to sit on juries. Um, and it's kind of amazing when you think about that. And I actually find the process of having a case go to trial to be this incredibly powerful and uplifting experience because it's really about saying, you know, okay, government, if prosecutor, if you're going to say that this person is guilty, do you have the goods? Can you prove it to a cross-section of somebody's community? And I think that every time I've done a trial, you know, my client who I'm with feels that they are treated better by the system because they get their day in court, you know. Uh, even if they're found guilty, they feel like they've had the process that they deserve and that they've received a fair shake. Um, so the process of going to trial is, can be very uplifting. It's also very scary because people don't know what's, what the outcome is going to be, um, and it can be very traumatic. So in terms of going to trial, that experience for, for Lance was, was not fun because he didn't really necessarily want to take the risk of going to trial, um, but he also didn't want to plead guilty to something that would saddle him with uh, the potential consequences um, that we had talked about. So it was really kind of a no-win situation mm-hmm. uh, uh, for him. So and what happened? It, was, it was hard. Yeah, what happened? Um, he was uh, convicted of uh, the possession of the drugs for sale. Thankfully, um, we had a, at least a fair-minded judge who didn't give him a lot of jail time for his conduct. But, you know, I do think it's going to set him back in his life. Is it ever something that can happen? I mean, you know, from my perspective as a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm very interested in treatment. And I can imagine you get someone who is dependent on a drug and they use it regularly and they get caught with it. Is it ever possible to get a sentence that's all about rehabilitation and treatment instead of punishment? Yes. And, and I, I, while I do battle with a district attorney's office here in my county, um, you know, there are a lot of situations where we can work something out where someone can do a drug treatment program um, and focus on their rehabilitation. I think the problem is that there's just so few resources out there for people. And we've, I think, in our kind of war on crime and war on drugs, we've built up the the prison end of things, the punishment end of things, and really neglected the rehabilitation and recovery end of things. That is starting to shift, I think. Um, surprisingly, uh, we've I think because of the financial circumstances in this country and the cost, the pure cost of incarceration, we've started to look at alternatives, one of which is focusing more on rehabilitation, so that is changing. Um, and, so, and that can happen, and it, it's actually great when it works out. Um, is rehabilitation cheaper than, than prison sentences? Almost always. I mean, I, I, I unfortunately don't have any uh, numbers right off the top of my head, but, you know, the cost of incarcerating someone in a county jail or in a state prison is astronomical. I mean, it would almost be cheaper to, you know, <laughs> provide someone with a 24-hour minder uh, and give them a house, and someone could just say, don't drink, don't drink, you know, let me take you over here to, to help you find a job. I mean, it would almost be cheaper to do that. It's remarkable, isn't it? Because we have 2.3 million people in prison right now, and 
such such a huge percent of them would be doing so much better if they were actually in a treat residential treatment, right? Than in oh, an actual yeah. prison. And and the, I mean, and so many of those numbers are in because of nonviolent drug and alcohol related offenses. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where, hopefully, I can see that you know I think that there is a change in the dialogue uh, about how we talk about drug and alcohol related offenses. And I do actually have a fair amount of hope um, about. Uh, a change in incarceration rates for that population. Another population is mental illness, um, which also then goes hand in hand, I think probably you know this more than I do, uh, with drug and alcohol abuse. But I also represent way too many people who are just mentally ill, and there's no really great way of finding space for them. And what kind of, what are the challenges that, that you face that are unique to that situation? And maybe you could tell me a story by way of answering. Sure, yeah. The, the dealing, dealing with people with mental illness in the criminal justice system is really frustrating because there's this obvious recognition that it's, their mental illness is in, in large part driving their behavior. Um, and sometimes we can arrange to get people treatment, um, to get people on medication or into some sort of residential program, uh, to hook people up with services. But sometimes we just can't because what they've done uh, is scary enough to the prosecutors that they don't really want to agree to, to a treatment program. And these people, I think, are so disserved by the criminal justice system. And I'll give you a particular example. I represented a, a young man uh, by the name of Kyle, and he was charged with a robbery. And it was a, little, it was a scary situation. He was homeless. He approached somebody on a deserted street. Um, and demanded uh, that someone give him some money or asked very forcefully that someone give him some money. Um, And when that person said no, uh, Kyle got in his way and flashed what the victim in the case believed to be a gun. No gun was ever recovered. Um, But he believed that he saw a gun at the time, and there very well may have been, although I don't think so. And the victim handed over his money, um, and, and Kyle ran off. Now, a couple of years before that, Kyle had broken into someone's house, um, so he had a prior conviction for um, breaking into someone's house, which is in California, a strike on his record, and so he was looking at a second strike. And I had him um, evaluated by a neuropsychiatrist, a psychiatrist, all to assess his mental functioning and his competency, um, and he was diagnosed with being borderline uh, mentally retarded, um, but also with um, like a schizoaffective disorder, I think is the, the correct term. Yeah. Um, and so he just had, you know, a myriad of problems. And I figured out a resolution where he could go and try to get some services, but it was on an outpatient basis. And uh, the prosecution just wasn't willing to have him on the streets, but I couldn't find any sort of residential facility that would be rigorous enough to satisfy the court and the prosecution because they wanted them to be in a locked facility uh, for a period of time. And unfortunately, we just couldn't end up working anything out for him, and and he um, ended up getting sentenced to nine years uh, in prison. So schizoaffective disorder is a combination of both psychotic illness and mood disorder. So he he suffers from... You know, alternating 
depression, uh, possibly with manias, as well as times when he may be frankly paranoid or psychotic. And so you can imagine that for someone like that, prison is terrifying for anyone. But for someone who has trouble distinguishing reality from uh, hallucinations or delusions, you can imagine how terrifying prison would be. And, and it's striking because this is not an uncommon story. A huge percentage of prisoners actually have major mental illness. Um, I'm struck as there was there no state mental hospital that would take him because there, at least in Maine, there are locked um, state, there is one locked state psychiatric facility where someone convicted of a crime but with a serious mental illness like this can be kept long term. Right, and and the hard part is that the standards often, for at least in California, of getting people into these facilities are so high. One is they can be detained pre-trial if they're not competent to stand trial, but he was actually at least with it enough to be competent to stand trial, um, and then he wasn't so psychotic uh, that he was considered not guilty by reason of insanity. So he fell within this kind of broad middle ground uh, of people who suffer from mental illness but can still function, um, and then there's no real place for them. When I hear a story like that, I can feel myself getting upset. <laughs> I can feel myself, you know, really getting both angry and very sad for a, a person like him who already suffers so much and then doesn't get help that he clearly needs. How yeah. I can imagine that, that that a huge challenge for you in a job like this, because you're someone who obviously cares so much, is coping with the feeling of, um, I don't know if it's disillusionment or outrage or deep grief or some combination of all of the above, <laughs> about how people who already suffer get, you know... Um, condemned to suffer more without any help that they so clearly need. How, how have you learned to cope with that distress in yourself? Um, it's, very, it's a very challenging, challenging thing. Um, we often talk about in our work about the idea of compassion fatigue, about how do you keep going when you just see so much tragedy um, on a daily basis and, and that you don't really ever feel like anybody's a winner. Um, you know what I what I what I do is you know I try to take care of myself, <laughs> um, exercise and maybe meditate or or do things that make me happy, but I also try to remember that you know my job is to ensure that I am an advocate for my client, uh, that I counsel them as best I can given the circumstances that they're in, that I ensure that. I fight for them and that I that I get to be someone who in their darkest moments for them uh, I'm treating them with dignity and with respect and I think if I can come home at the end of the day saying I did that even if I can't save somebody or even if um, something bad is going to happen or I, I feel good about my day if I can do that. Can you give me an example of maybe a classic way that someone might be railroaded by the legal system, say, into a plea bargain that might not be good for them, mm. that you are able to help them avoid? Like, what do you know by virtue of your education that you can help someone with just simply because they don't realize the risk they're taking, say? That's a hard one. I think, I don't know that I feel any great skill in terms of being able to kind of help people avoid something. I mean, I know of all the consequences and I can advise them. Um, 
you know, certainly I've represented people who I feel are really innocent or, you know, should be found innocent because they're just so tangentially involved in something that they didn't really participate in it or that they got the wrong person or they don't have the evidence. And I've, I've had trials in this ex- wonderful experience when you do a trial. I actually had it this week um, where someone was charged with a robbery offense and they were found guilty only of a, of a petty theft because they stole someone's bike. And when the jury comes back and says the words not guilty, it's so uplifting um, for myself and my client. Um, but in other, you know, other situations, uh, I can think of one where I represented someone uh, named Robert, and he was actually charged with, with murder. Uh, he was a homeless guy who was charged with murdering a, another homeless guy during a night. Um, and the basic facts were kind of not really disputed, is that this other guy who was drunk at the time came into Robert's encampment um, and started ranting and raving, and they got in a scuffle, and, and Robert hit him, um, and, he, and, and the other homeless guy died. Uh, and Robert was charged with murder. And I just thought to myself, you know, if he was a, a white person living in an upper-class neighborhood and someone had come into his house <laughs> ranting and raving and he had defended himself, he never would have been charged with a crime, let alone murder. Given all the things that you witness in your position, Michael, and this may be a hard call to make, but where would you say there is the greatest injustice or where the injustice is the most egregious? Is it in police conduct in terms of focusing entirely in neighborhoods of color that are poor? You know, is it is it in prosecution and the way that prosecutors are able to heap a lot of charges on people? and Or is it in sentencing with manda- mandatory minimum sentences? Where would you say if you had to fix one thing, you know, what is where do you think the most egregious injustices are? <laughs> You've just listed all of the great injustices in our system, and so it is incredibly hard uh, to pick and choose. You know, obviously, if we changed our policing tactics in some ways, that could have a huge impact. Um, and if we changed the sentencing that would have a big impact. But I think if we changed prosecutors' attitudes, and and I know this might be a controversial thing to say because there's a lot of very good prosecutors out there who are doing great things and who are seeking justice and who are representing victims and trying to protect the public. I don't mean to minimize that. Um, But I feel that there's a lot of fear-mongering about criminals um, and their behavior, and there's a lot of sense that we really need to uh, aggressively prosecute every sort of crime. Um, And I feel that a lot of prosecutors get lost themselves in this kind of culture of competitiveness and this culture of winning at all costs uh, and this culture of needing to prosecute everybody and kind of losing the forest through the trees a little bit. I can imagine that no one wants to be the prosecutor who let someone go who then went on to commit some horrible crime. Like that would be every prosecutor's worst nightmare. Every prosecutor's worst nightmare and every judge's worst nightmare. And it's understandable, and I don't mean to minimize that concern. And I certainly, like I said, don't mean to minimize the good work that many prosecutors do. And one of the funny things that people talk to public defenders about is uh, is saying, you know, well, if, if 
they're guilty, they should be found guilty, or you're just trying to get people off on a technicality or something like that. And, you know, if someone is guilty and, and they have, and, and it's a serious case and, and the district attorney has the evidence and they can prove it, there's nothing I can do to stop that. Right. You know, um, I, I, I will just, I will do my job to represent my client as best I can. And the person is, you know, 99.9% going to get convicted and, and do their time. So it's not that we're trying to get people off on loopholes or technicalities or something. We're just trying to to respect the process and, and, and uphold people's rights. Michael, it feels like the thing that I've been learning in this series so much is the way that we get encouraged in our culture to think of criminals as barely human. You know, to, to just think of these people as like they deserve punishment. We, I, I'm aware of a part of me that has been trained to write these people off. And Certainly. one of the things that I have so learned in doing this series and in listening to each person I've interviewed as well as you is really the powerful affirmation of the fundamental humanity of people who make mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes, but who whose personhood is bigger than that mistake. So it's wonderful to be reminded of that by you. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, you're very welcome. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Michael Leppi about his experiences working as a public defender. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show, and if you'd like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. You can listen to all prior shows there, as well as sign up to get an email with each weekly show. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.